It's a door that once walked through, there is no going back. It is transformative. Hello, I'm Colin Williams. And I'm Ian Rowlands. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. Now, Ian, today we're going to talk about something that we've wanted to do for a long while because I've long been interested in how music, and more especially song, um, can bring us closer to the non-human world that we inhabit. And I think from the moment I heard Jeannie Robertson sing McCrimmon's Lament right through to hearing the voice of Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan and all of the sand and night and devotion in that voice, I continue to be amazed by the power of the human voice to invoke the spirit of place and the spirit of season. And But beyond that, I sometimes believe that our song is inseparably connected to even deeper roots than just tradition or time and place. And in an interview with an elder of the Uremi people of Mexico about their ceremonial songs and music, he said, it was the mountain mouse that taught humans to play the drum, and above the mouse, sitting on a branch, sings the bird. And we also learnt from the birds how to shuffle our feet and dance. And, and I am fascinated by this idea um, that musical meaning does not emerge solely from notes or modes or melodies or rhythms, but from the experience of inhabiting the world such that it's possible for songs to be learned and shared freely between humans, birds, the trees, the, the world around us. And I am delighted to, um, to welcome someone who can help us explore some of these things and to talk about his new book, The Nightingale, Notes on a Songbird. And it's the Mercury Prize-nominated folk singer, conservationist, song collector, award-winning promoter, broadcaster and activist Sam Lee. Sam, welcome to Beneath the Stream. Oh, thank you Colin and Ian. What a beautiful introduction to your, yeah, this session. I'm, I'm transported to times and worlds elsewhere. And Sam, before we talk about, um, to talk about The Nightingale, um, your new book, um, just wanted to congratulate you on your most recent album old wow um which was fantastic um and uh i really think you know i've been listening to traditional music for uh all of my life really um and i really think old wow is is something of a landmark and and uh and making old wow you also got to work with bernard butler well <laughs> uh that must have been quite the experience yeah indeed uh, you know it's funny because okay so we're I'm. I really appreciate that we we're talking today from the perspective of the connection to nature, and to, you know, in many ways to go and make a record that, for me, was so much about my the evoking of the the emotional relationships and the 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 capturing the the kind of dialogue that we as a, uh, that we have through folk song and through traditional music or oral culture with the natural world to go and work with a producer who comes from one of the most sort of widely known rock bands was in many ways a little bit of a kind of gamble even though I, I knew Bernard we'd worked a little bit together before and I'd always been very fond of him 
like putting the responsibility of the um of the calibration the kind of capturing the sound world uh, into somebody who maybe I hadn't gone out camping with and I knew would probably never go out camping <laughs> he likes his comforts uh, and and actually it he turned out to be an extraordinary guide who entered into the into the ceremonial aspect of what I was trying to achieve mm. um, and the sentimental um, and, and allow him to be able to channel and Bernard more than just rose to the occasion, you know, but together we had one of the most extraordinary musical collaborations I've ever experienced. And he said, you know, I quote him by saying it was the greatest experience of making an album he's ever had, which is a wonderful uh, honor really, because he's an amazing human. But I think I, in some ways what we were working with in terms of the messages in the, in the songs and, and the intention within the album it opened him up to a, a role that music can play that I don't think he'd experienced so much, and 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 I'm learning about as well. I'm no I'm no master, and I think he ended up really daring into some extraordinary spaces and confronting some some quite awesome and at times quite emotional and grief-filled uh, experiences. So I have a lot of. Um, respect and appreciation to Bernard for that and we'll always be grateful to him for going on that journey with me well that's that's wonderful and and you you use the word guide there um and uh and that's that's a lovely segue into into talking about uh, your new book the nightingale notes on a songbird and uh, your whole journey that's that's been built around that that you that you write about in the book um and that uh just going back to old whale for a minute you you write that there there was a there was a key moment where you had uh, an encounter with a buzzard and you use the word that, that that moment and that um encounter with that other being um you felt um to quote you a presence and reassurance um in that moment and it became a key a key moment for you in in what you were trying to express on that record and, and in the music you were making and I also felt that that was something um, that was very much that presence and reassurance was a very good way to describe um, your journey towards the nightingale and especially its mm. uh, increasing place in your heart um, as as a totem of, of some of the problems that we're we're facing as a world and, and as a species is that fair to say yeah it's a and totem is a very uh it's a very potent word um and i would dare to use it and i'm pleased you bring it up um as a as a as a term that's obviously associated so much with a a totally other culture but i think maybe you know, with permission can use to um to bring about a sense of what an English totemism, uh, totemism can be for um, our understanding how we can have relationships with the natural world in such a visceral and narrative-filled way, you know, through story and through um, kind of myth and identity. And it's a funny one because I, you know, I love the fact that you bring up the, the Mexican mouse teaching the drum and, and that, and the way that the, uh, the indigenous peoples, particularly of the Americas, um, 
have such wonderful abstract stories that within them hold personality within the animals that I don't ever believe is an anthropomorphism. It's a, it's a, it's a recognised characters within the, the animal and bird kingdom and natural world that we share and this idea of a projection I, I don't I don't subscribe to it because I don't see a, a differentiation and once we we can start to recognize them in a sort of unconstrained way and I, I have that with the nightingale and also the buzzard and the heron and recently just coming to my fourth totem creature which is the kestrel um, the buzzard for fire the nightingale for earth the heron for water and the and the kestrel for air um, and that's only completed within the last nine months for me. Um, the heron came first, then the nightingale, then the buzzard. Um, and they they occupy for me a sort of stories that I have uh, arrived at, a learning that I've arrived at by being in witness to them and observation and sometimes bigger encounters than others where they've come as teachers, they've come as my guides. And I've recognized that and I've been allowed to recognize that because I've been able to shed some of the sort of, and I don't come from an ornithological, ornithological background. I just come from a very playful artistic background, which ultimately I think is something that is shared as a storyteller, as my art is in storytelling, whether that's through song or word or visual art, that that's something that's shared, you know, pan globally as a, as a way of, uh, as a way of interpreting and negotiating and communing with the world around, and actually making nature part of us, is by yeah, is by that acceptance. I find that nature is projecting itself into me and onto me, not I'm projecting myself onto nature, um, and that's really the kind of approach that I've had with the nightingale not even on a conscious level and the writing of the book was a way of suddenly bringing together all the different apertures through which worlds have seen the nightingale all across the the, the continents that they live in and seeing all these different personalities of the bird and realizing wow they are all in that bird and my relationship to that bird is very specific to mine and a mirror to me and I've gravitated towards him because I recognize so much about Nightingale that is similar to myself and you know there is a there is a resonance a frequency that I share and and traits and behaviors and things that I really admire and things that I frustrate on you know and thus I have a kind of you know this great romance with the bird um so I mean I've sort of wandered around here but uh yeah, thanks for bringing up totems. I, I, I implore people to find their own way of carving that creature into oneself on a totemic level, allowing it to, you know, a totem pole is just a tree with bits removed to inhabit the story and the quality of, yeah, raven or bear or whale or, or nightingale or heron or whatever or mole or, or, or water vole whatever is your totemic creature and all are equal and are all are mighty in their own little way
So there's tons to unpick there, Sam, and I, I just, which, in a really good way, in a really good way, because I, I, I kind of do come from an ornithological background and I come from a sort of shamanic background too. So, and I do think that I, I'm intrigued to know what draws you to these totem creatures or what, what they are doing to call to you. So we'll come to that. But I think there's also something that says, perhaps in Britain, we are allowed to claim that heritage because arguably the repeated invading forces of the British Isles drove out our ancestors' identification mm. with totem animals and that close relationship with the natural world. So we, you know, perhaps you're you're leading the charge to give people permission to reclaim that heritage. And I wondered how that how does that reach out to you? Why why is why have those different creatures found their place in your your east, your south, your west, your north? Who? Why have they? Um, because I'm because I'm very lucky in the people I've gravitated towards and the communities and circles that and the teachers that have shown all the the ways that one can relate to the natural world and I've also seen you know spent time with the people who do it in a way that I don't like so I've cherry-picked I feel re really grateful to folk music though and I um uh really grateful because folk song has been my Okay, so I started in nature training since I was very young and went through a lot of wilderness guides and um, people like Ray Mears who have been, who come at it from a very kind of like a, a Victorian, very much a kind of academic encyclopedic way, which is wonderful and so important about restoration of knowledge and skill. And then I've worked with other teachers uh, who work on the more shamanic level, um, but also with ultimately the same idea of... of yeah of connecting and working in correspondence with nature and that's that's been one that's been my kind of my ground my foundation and then the folk song allowed me to several things it's firstly to discover a sense of indigeneity um and uh that i see that our folk song is it is absolutely our our indigenous relationship to the natural world and also to our sense of community and our narratives and within it there's some songs that are dross and say nothing about nature and there are others that hold within them a very very powerful essence of the 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 spiritual the the magical the atavistic side of our ancient love that somehow held on and become in a very english or scottish way has been in there but actually that that thread goes straight back to a shamanic tradition, whatever that might have been within the travellers or gypsies or settled people of this land that somehow lingered on and the folk songs have, have been a vessel through which it's carried. But they've also told me something that's really else that I'm really curious about, which is that in the working as an, as an artist, and as a contemporary interpreter, it's taught me the art of PR and packaging and presentation. And we can't discount how important that is that the working within the mainstream of music, you know, on the fringes of mainstream of music, I've got to learn how to communicate things I'm talking about with you that I wouldn't say to you in very many other interviews uh, of, a, of a sense of the divinical and um, that can emerge, that can be spoken about which are implicit but not explicit uh, because most people would run for a mile if they saw the cloak that it was actually wearing. So 
that's been a really important teacher for me in terms of how to present in a way that's kind of almost Trojan horse-like in leading people into a space of wonder and enchantment is the word that I like and reveal to them a kind of like an intoxication of nature in a way that that's through a medium that they're very familiar with a cd a concert in a venue or a book you know and you know i don't know if i get it right all the time but i like to think that i'm sort of trying to cast spells um and that's and that's what we need more of we need more of that and i really like the packaging so i think it's because um (laughs) because and and I, i i do literally like the packaging but i also believe in in what you just spoke about so eloquently which is I mean, social scientists talk about self-selecting audiences, and we know that the message around the importance of the natural world reaches the same ears over and over and over. And if we want to, and we have to reach new ears, then it's people with gifts like yours who are able to do it by Trojan horse or smuggling it in or whatever metaphor we want to use. But it's it's brilliantly effective. So well done for that. Thank you. There's for the fraction of a percent of people that listen to my music there's a lot of other people who would hate it if they ever encountered it and i'll never win over and i have to let some i i let other people and this is for me another really important side of the work which is particularly the work i do with music declares emergency which is about getting the the music world on board to this message to tell it in their own way that isn't my patchouli smelling kind of wood smoke infused style um uh, and is much more, you know, contemporary and, you know, poppy, because I'll never be able to do that. And I'd fail dismally if I tried. I can't be all things to all people. Um, so I do what I do and whoever it reaches, great. Um, but you, you talked there, Sam, spl- splendidly about, about leading leading people into that. So we, we've moved from other other beings being your guide into you being guide, because you, you do take people... Um, into the woods to hear nightingales to spend a night with them to spend a night in that environment to to do as you as you so wonderfully said cast hopefully cast spells um and so i'm i'm really intrigued as to um as to what do you see any change in people as you have those experiences with them as you share the nightingale with them as you share your songs and your stories with them how do people respond do you see them changing in those experiences yeah it's a door that once walked through, there is no going back. Um, and maybe some of the people who are coming have heard nightingales and had that experience, but the trajectory, the dropping in that I take people on from the time they arrive, 7 p.m. through till 12.30, is a particular process that I've sort of, it's a, the- it's a piece of theatre, really, that I've crafted. And it's not very clever, but it's a just... You know, just the, these certain impetuses at the certain times that create this uh, way of dropping people in. And it is transformative. And it's why I feel that, you know, I could go around just saying, no, I'm only going to do gigs, you know, for 500 people and I want to be paid this much money and whatever. And I'm only going to do the, you know, it's about size and actually have 30 people or this year it's actually 35 people a night. And that's an appalling ratio of my time and energy. <laughs> and the impact that it has is so profound that it's worth more than a, you know, a Wembley Stadium gig could ever be for me because they, you know, at least once a night, there's somebody who has a, 
a radical transformation and I get it all every year I get the e and I invite people to write and they send me the email saying I've quit my job I've left my husband I've decided that this is what I need in life and you know it's um and that's for me more important than anything you know that uh, it reminds me actually it's funny because one of the stories in the book is the is the the Hans Christian Andersen story of the nightingale um uh, which is such an, a beautiful and and sort of prescient and contemporary story about the real nightingale coming into conflict with the automaton nightingale. And at the very end of the story, when um, the emperor is dying, and because the mechanical nightingale has f seized up and no longer works, the real nightingale returns. He's who's run away because he's been banished, and he says that you know the. He, the, the emperor returns back to health and says you can have everything of mine any gift you want and the the nightingale says i've had the greatest gift and that's to see your tears of your of your love towards my song and and then they come into contract over what the conditions are of the nightingale only singing when it pleases him and that he will be the messenger of what's happening in the land and you must never tell anyone that you are receiving knowledge from the nightingale this is a wonderful set of conditions that feels so they're so they're so indigenous otherworldly and i just for me that's this i feel very much the same thing that i to witness the people having that experience even if it's at gale force five like it was last night <laughs> lucky nobody actually came to you at the end but um you know that's sort of there was something that happened last wanted to do last night because I always really loved that story of um, Turner, the apocryphal tale of James W. Turner, to to paint the storms that he did so incredibly. He 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 is supposed to have had himself lashed to the mast, the top of a mast of a ship, sailing out into a storm, so he could experience that full force. And last night I was like, maybe tonight I have to go and do a. a W, J.W. Turner and a nightingale go and be in the heart of that storm and experience what the nightingales do when they're out in that to really feel what the full force of nature is. And maybe I need to bring 35 people with me so they can really experience the power of nature. And I was ruled overruled on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, there's a anyway. but there's a phrase you use in the book which is really apt for that because I kind of lifted it, Sam, because there's so many little glorious bits there, which is like a... You've said very often what I encounter is a sense of dissolving, especially of the separation mm. between the worlds of human and nature. And I think nothing would do that more than being, you know, lashed to a hawthorn thicket <laughs> in the in the in the storm, where a nightingale is is also crouching, but you know, sheltering from the weather. So I get it. Yeah. Yeah. The what? The, as you know, so I'm glad you bring that up because, and I'm in the midst of it because I've down done three weeks of being out there, and these are the nuances that I forget. This idea of dissolving. There are many, there are many versions of dissolving, and that, uh, and you know, there are many acids one can use to to dissolve. And like last night was one of tumult, even though I wasn't really out with the birds. But then we've had their sleeplessness, and I'm feeling this like absolutely the poorest, the emotional fragility right now of having slept so little and uh, being so close to the work. But also like the the moon, the super moon we had last week. Uh, a week ago and the build up to it in these freezing cold the coldness the 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 power of that moon which was 13% brighter and 
just, you know, was knocking me out, let alone the nightingales. And just all these different times you go in and you find yourself dissolved in a different way is actually a really kind of... You forget that it's not just one form of open way of being opened up by it. It happens. And that's the privilege I have of doing it several times, you know, over and over again. And and in in your book, Sam, you... you as you kind of close, you, you express wonderfully what your hope and vision is um, for for us um, and the nightingale. Not only the nightingale as a again a symbol of of the perils that the world faces. It's and it's not only its habitat loss and it's uh, and all of those things, but uh, you, you have the hope and the vision that one day people, if you don't mind me saying, won't need you to take them in <laughs> into the woods. Um, you you, yeah. you want. You want people to normalise their pilgrimage to the birds um, and to hear their song as families of people of all ages and all backgrounds um, to to go and to go and hear that. Um, t- tell us why you believe that 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 is the secret. That's the key to us becoming less separated from these things and seeing ourselves more of a part of, of that. The, seeing these animals and seeing these birds in these places as 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 brethren, as family. Mm. Well, there's there's many ways I can answer that, and there's the kind of the key to a better sense of well-being, us as a species, us as a community, as a cult- country, as a culture, specifically England, Great Britain. There's also the side of that, the key to a uh, a chance of our survival as a species to you know to bring about you know start that sort of you know the charity starts at home idea that if we're going to bring about a radical shift in our practice. Our behavior that is going to you know mitigate climate change then an ecological collapse then we need to start focusing on the things around us that we realize we're accountable to that we will viscerally see the decline of and the disappearance of and the nightingale although only living in a very specific part of of england holds a, a really wonderful if brief opportunity to have a um yeah to have a you know in entrancing experience and you know a a very visceral yeah very kind of powerful one but uh you know for me the like the ambition and I'm a romantic and I've got no idea how this would grow and happen and I you know I might die trying to do this but is to is to bring about a sort of yeah and use the word normalization and a basically a sort of movement of people starting to reclaim their sense of sovereignty to the natural world and the permission getting over all the the boundaries and barriers both physical legal uh and confidence and fear that go hand in hand with going out into nature you know we live in a terrifying time with the criminalizing of trespass being the final nail in the coffin of the attrition that has affected us as a as a nation in our sense of access to the natural world. We're all affected by it um, because we simply can't step off the path. We can't go on the journeys and go on those those places of wonder, wandering and wandering into nature without this cattled, confined way of doing it that has, if you know, luckily evolved into many different sort of activities like rock climbing and cycling we have all these like outdoorness but actually a lot of them are about finding ways to be in nature 
that are radically different of, of than what we've evolved or ancestrally had the ability to do that foster a sensorial and you know a sympathetic compassionate relationship with nature so they've turned into these kind of wonderful things that we've developed industries for but ultimately nature is a sort of uh, side kind of liner in in a lot of it and they a lot of those interactions aren't very deepening for our connection with nature and nor are they very always very good for nature they don't actually end up nature coming off in a like a you know a beautiful way that actually makes us go oh, i've understood i've i've developed a relationship i've understood a little bit more about the nuances of species and ecology and so and story is a wonderful thing for doing that because it takes the human you know the human spirit and appeal for we all we need story that's what life is about and it marries that with you know a, 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 yeah an awareness of what's around us and what's going on So you mentioned the word in the book, and I, I wanted to get you to expand on it a little bit. Solastalgia. So, so tell us yeah. a little bit about that because that's a fascinating idea. Wow, it's yeah. Oh my god, I'm gonna start. I go there, I'm gonna start crying. <laughs> it's the it's the word so full of grief. Yeah. So the the word solastalgia. It's a neologism coined by Glenn Albrecht, who's a kind of environmental philosopher, uh, an Australian man, and. Um, it's a it's two words it's solace and nostalgia put together and it's this idea of the um that that witnessing no that that sorrow that we have for the loss of a home it's that sensation when we go back to a childhood field that we played in and it's become houses it's been erased and somewhere that maybe we had a deep connection with um, that has become, yeah, dis disappeared. And, uh, but it's so, it's about the loss that we have in ourselves. Uh, what bit of us is cut out every time those bits are taken away. And incrementally, they, you know, they hurt, but collectively they destroy. Um, and I think that's where that word is, has such like massiveness, even if it's on just an intimate level of a, you know, a, just a tree that comes down, this idea of something small that's lost, but also what happens when the thickets are no longer filled with nightingales and you go out in May to these places and they're no longer there singing. That emptiness that is felt, what that, um, what that would, what would that would be like? Um, and the idea of thinking of it to come is almost as terrible as the kind of experiencing it in real time. And I hear it with the nightingales. I go back to sites that have had nightingales coming for, you know, forever and none return that year. And I'm like, oh my God, it's silent here. This land should not be silent at this time. This is awful. Yeah. And what I thought the book did really powerfully, Sam, was because you, you've really captured up uh, in a way our state of knowledge about nightingale emotionally viscerally there's quite a lot of biological information in there too so you you've made us understand the grief there's a sort of shifting baseline there what 
this is what we have and this is what we could lose and we're either going to see that as a future generation will read that book and think i had no idea that ever existed Mm. or which and i'm quoting caroline lucas here about which i'm i'm a great admirer too and said we we need you to paint the positive picture of how the world can be and i think that's Mm. the other side of the book that in a way you didn't just offer the there isn't just the solastalgia there there's also the the what if sensibility that the sense of step into the unknown realm and we can value this and reclaim it is, is that was that what you were aiming for there yeah and it's funny because you know I, the way the book was is that in some ways that's a whole other book in itself which i'm maybe not qualified to write um but i'm but for me it's like one of the biggest tasks as an artist and working in the as an activist or an or a uh, an activator which is how important that art is as Caroline says, it's a, this is a failure of our imagination. Um, and that failure is, is as much for us as a nation to be endorsing the creative industries and other industries to embrace this, you know, I, maybe I'm just like a bit high my own horse right now, go, this is the most important thing and this is the way it's got to happen. It's a collective effort. Um, and it's not just artists, but to create opportunity and yeah, this is an incredible year, 2021, because nobody's going abroad. Very few people are going abroad. Every campsite in the country is booked out solidly, every single one. And there's this kind of like, we've, we've suddenly got all eyes on our land. And there's, it's, we're going to look back in a kind of really curious way in time and go, wow, what did that do to us as a nation to rediscover our camp? You know, tent cells are going out the roof. Everything's going, everyone's going crazy for the outdoors because that's all they're allowed to do. And yeah, we hear it on campsites, but where are the other opportunities to, uh, for, and there's such, you know, this is where the ecotourism, the, the industry that could be created for guides of which there are so many people to offer and find an income to actually start to take people and do things with people, maybe a little bit like the Nightingales or just on a more experiential level. And the book, for me, the book that captures it brilliantly is Benedict MacDonald's Rebirding, which goes into great depth of the failure of the, the charities, the NGOs and the, the government in protecting our nature and not looking at it on an on economic level to actually endorse a green economy which would have such a massive impact on land ownership and usage and open a vast amount of finance that's being sent off elsewhere into industrial farming that has no return. There's no financial comeback from it. So the, the, the thing is, we're just like, we're so stuck in our way that we're refusing this wonderful possible future that would make everyone happier. Our country would be humming with, you know, storks and pelicans and bison and moose and maybe lynx and maybe wolves. Why not stop there? And, you know, and creating like wonderful wildernesses that are filled with people and people having, yeah, profound experiences and and landowners raking it in and guides raking it in and local economies raking it in <laughs> do you know what i mean and and uh and yeah and no monsanto thank you very much less needed and i think i don't you th- i mean in a way I, I what i hear and is what i want to hear from you sam but i guess it's I, I, my view is that we've tried and so have all the conservation organizations governments we've tried these things and we're still losing everything so let's Let's adopt some new approaches. Let's be more radical in our outlook. I think it's where creatives like yourself had an 
incredible role to play. And and in a way, I'm really conscious that young people have an appetite for what you're talking about. I mean, we we did some broadcast sessions, uh, an organization around called Siren Calling, and 50% of the views were from young people interested in wild spaces, rewilding, and mental well-being. And I think that that speaks volumes, doesn't it? We're, yeah. we're not clutching at something that people don't want. They just don't know they want it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one bit of hope that I have for this dismal future we're inheriting, uh, racing towards, is that the youth are just so awoken to it. And, you know, you see the Fridays for Future and, you know, I've spent time at some of the marches in Trafalgar Square with tens of thousands of young kids with amazing placards and impassioned, like, feeling this sense of, like, uh, like you know, re- rebelling and breaking away from authority. And that's what we need. And, my God, and they're fast growing up and going to become vocal and, yeah, persuasive uh agitators to the the social order yeah political order i hope i hope i'm right not just some idealist who stuck in my own echo chamber <laughs> well i think um i think sam we could talk to you for hours and uh oh, and uh, we've 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 barely scratched the surface of our shared love of traditional music and uh, and and all of those things crimmins lament yeah good god well, it brings me to it brings <laughs> me to near tears each time i hear it it's it's a remarkable voice um and uh, but we share your same hopes and i think we share with you um glimpses of possibility there that that mean that that's not just going to be an empty hope um and uh and uh, we are so grateful for you joining us and uh and thank you so much for being here and uh, thank you for your music your words um and your actions and uh and uh we've we've so enjoyed uh speaking with you today thanks very much sam lee thank you guys 